The Lens Pod is a medical student-run podcast for educational purposes only and reflects the opinions of the hosts and guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lens Pod, a medical student ophthalmology podcast. My name is Haley. And I'm Katie. And we are your medical student hosts for this episode. Today, we speak with Dr. Jacqueline O'Banion to learn about the ever-evolving role of medical students and trainees in global ophthalmology. Dr. Jacqueline O'Banion received her MD at the University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio, and completed ophthalmology residency and a global eye care fellowship at the University of Oklahoma. Currently, she serves as an assistant professor and comprehensive ophthalmologist at Emory Eye Center, as well as the director for the Eye Center's Global Ophthalmology Emory Program, Go Emory. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. O'Banion. Thank you both. I'm excited. So to start, we're kind of just going to define global ophthalmology uh, for the medical student listener. So could you please describe for us global ophthalmology in your own words? Yeah, I I think of global ophthalmology as kind of the intersection of public health and clinical care as it pertains to eye care. It's concentrated more on of the prevention of eye disease and blindness and as well as the curing side, but it's looking at things and solutions more as from the population lens rather than the one-on-one patient interaction lens. Awesome. And do you think you could tell us a little bit about the work you did in medical school and residency, uh, the global health work you did and how you got involved? Yeah. So um, kind of even starting before that, I grew up in Texas and I learned Spanish in schools and really took to it. And I knew I wanted to do medicine. And so I volunteered a lot in free medical clinics as an interpreter throughout middle school and high school and college. And so from that, I like interaction of seeing how I could kind of be a bridge and serve a different role in that doctor-patient relationship, I really got interested in global health. And so that was going to be my plan. I went to, um, I went to college and majored in Spanish, and then I went to medical school and my plan was to do infectious disease. Cause I thought that's what, you know, if you wanted to do global health work, you had to do. And so knowing that I wanted to do global health, that kind of led a lot of my trajectories. So I just kept making decisions where I would have opportunity. So one of the um, opportunities, or there were multiple at um, UTESCA, so the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, it's a big mouthful. Um, So they had a couple of things. So one is they had, you could spend up to half of your med school career. So your two clinical years in the border area of Texas. So you could be working with the population there, which is obviously going to be very indigent care, a lot of migrants in a very different healthcare environment than, you know, a large city like San Antonio. So that was one reason for choosing there. And one of the experiences I had, the other one was that we, they had a global health program at UTESCA and the, one of the professors there Abraham Verghese, he's no longer there. He's at Stanford. I think he's still at Stanford, but he's written multiple books. Um, He's from India originally. And so he had set up with his medical school an exchange. So you could go and spend a month during medical school in India and learn about medicine there and just gain experience. So both of those were, and then 
the standard that I feel like almost all med students do of working in free clinics and the student run clinics. So those were all medical school, um, global health opportunities and things that I pursued. And it was just choosing a school that presented them. You know, I could have gone to other medical schools that didn't have those opportunities, but, you know, I knew I wanted to do global health in some way or shape or form. So that's kind of how I chose that. And similarly, I chose a residency that had opportunities for global health work. When I was interviewing, that was something I always asked. And I would ask kind of more in depth, not just do you have these opportunities, but what are they? Because I found that a lot of programs would say, oh yeah, we do. And it was that, you know, someone had done a rotation three years ago, or, you know, there was someone that might want to do one, but there wasn't any formal track or formal method. It was more of a, if you want to do that, you can find it on your own and figure it out. And so that's what I was kind of feeling out during residency interviews. And when I, so I ended up choosing to go to University of Oklahoma, D. McGee Eye Institute for one of the main reasons being that they had a set program. So every third year resident or every PGY4 went to either China or Eswatini in Southern Africa for two weeks. And so that just symbolized to me that if it was set in stone, it was something that everyone got, that there would be more support and more opportunity for me if I went there. And through, you know, the network there and meeting alumni, I met uh, Dr. Bill Clifford, who went to, he wasn't in Oklahoma, he's in Kansas, but he was still very involved in the alumni program. And he would go to Peru every summer on a, on a trip. And so I just started asking if I could go with him. And so I would you know, for three years, I took vacation time and would go to Peru with him to learn and get experience. So those are kind of, you know, how the work I did in medical school and residency. And then, of course, there's fellowship and everything afterwards. But it was more just kind of asking around, finding what was there and looking for opportunity. Wow. I feel like you mentioned so many things that I want to comment on. I love, <laughs> I love the just kind of resounding, having to go after what you want and, you know, speak up and say that you're interested in things. Cause I do feel like as medical students and soon to be residents or residents, sometimes it's really hard or you feel uncomfortable doing that. So I think that's really great advice. Um, and I love what you said about interviewing because I just went through the interview cycle and I noticed that too, where sometimes if you ask the follow-up question of what are the global ophthalmology opportunities or what is this global ophthalmology tracked in your program and wanting to kind of understand the model of care that they either go in and perform or if it exists at all is really important. And I would advise all medical students that will be going through that process soon uh, to do exactly as you said, because you can learn more and not to talk down on any programs, but sometimes you will see that it's not uh, what it's advertised to be. I think that's important to know. And whether it's global ophthalmology or it's research or a specific area of medicine, like maybe you're really into pathology and there's that's not a very strong aspect of most programs. And you say, 
you know, I'm really interested in pathology. What kind of opportunities are there? Everyone's going to have something because you have to <laughs> for accreditation. But if you dig deeper and just ask that follow-up question, you're going to get a bunch better idea of how hard it is going to be to get those experiences. 100%. Awesome. Um, so we are also wondering, you know, you mentioned being interested in infectious disease and thinking that that was going to be a great uh, way to lead into global health, but um, we're wondering how you perceive ophthalmology as a specialty being uniquely positioned for global health. You know, it's interesting because ophthalmology historically has been kind of one of the first fields involved in global health, just because I think the eyes are so important. There's also a lot of religious context that has to do with vision and the eyes. And so it's always lent itself to being a kind of quote, easy route uh, or, you know, a, a popular one, but it's changed so much over the years. And I think that from the medical standpoint, one of the reasons that ophthalmology has been successful is that it is something that can be done in a short course, meaning you can go and you can do some surgeries with relative, few, relatively few technology and instruments and things and you've solved the problem. Whereas with things like HIV work and diabetes and blood pressure, you know, the more chronic illnesses, it isn't something that lends itself into a short term trip or, or experience. And so that is kind of where I think ophthalmology got its real stronghold with global health work. Now that's evolved and changed and we've seen that that isn't a great answer. I'm not going to say that what is done is bad because I think there is still good there. I think though that what we found like most things with looking again at history and the way that the world has evolved, you know, with colonization and anytime you bring foreigners or others into a population and start to do anything and then you leave, you leave a vacuum. And so what we've learned is that the short-term cataract mission, if you will, isn't a great solution in and of itself. It doesn't mean, though, that people that do that are wrong. It doesn't mean that, you know, to be in global ophthalmology, you have to do this lifelong career and go all the time. But what it means is that you need to see what role that plays in the bigger picture, understanding the health system, understanding the training capacities and what you're doing there and what sideline harm you might be causing. So working side by side with a local doctor when you're there, rather than just working alone so that you're training that other doctor, or you're even, if it's not training the other doctor, it's giving the perception to the general public that this person is capable and good and that they should continue to come and see that person. So it's it's evolved from kind of that short-term intervention to something more sustainable and that is more systems and population-based. I think I kind of wandered there, but. <laughs> no, that was perfect. We, our next question was, was about that very topic. Um, and you sort of touched on it, you know, how things have changed over time from being a system like you're saying, where you cataract mission, you fly in, you do a bunch of surgeries and fly out to a more sustainable method. And so 
have you, what have you seen in your practice recently that have been sustainable practices that have, that you've seen it as really successful? I think it's, it's the successful programs are the ones that are plugged in, right? So that you're going and you are working within the local system versus creating your own system. So that, I think that's another big difference is that a lot of times groups would come in and set up their own kind of mission hospital type of thing and only operate there and not have any interaction with the rest of the health system. But by doing it within the health system, you see how things work there and you can make recommendations or teach based on your experiences from home that can then be used once you leave. And vice versa. I mean, when you're working within the local system, you learn the way that they're doing things because there's a lot that we do in the U.S. that isn't necessarily needed. And you learn some ways to be more efficient when you are working in a lower resource setting. And so I think the ones that are successful are the ones that are working within the local system. And that even if you are going, you know, once a year, once every couple of years, going back to that same place so that you're creating a relationship with those doctors that are there and maintaining that relationship, you know, just being somebody that they can call up when they have a difficult case and just say, you know, we, what would you do with this? How would we handle this? And you at least know a little bit about what their health system is like and what options they have. So you're not going to offer something that's, you know, completely unavailable and not possible there, but also they can learn. And so it's just creating that two-way communication so that everyone can learn from each other. So I think that, like I said, the programs that are most successful are the ones that have longevity to it. So the repeated visits and are working within the system versus separate. I love that you mentioned the collaboration because we've had a couple other episodes that have talked about community outreach efforts Um, Not so much globally, but even domestically. And I think it's so important to emphasize, you know, having community partners and building trust and understanding, like you said, what they mean. So it's awesome that you kind of just re-emphasized it again. And hopefully our listeners are catching on to our theme. Um, I did want to ask just one question about something you mentioned before. And you said, you know, when sometimes these shorter term missions go in, it leaves a vacuum. And I just wanted to clarify kind of what you meant for some of the listeners. I was interpreting it as uh, your later point about, you know, if you go in and you kind of disrupt the trust with local providers, and then they wait for these American doctors to come back and treat them, and then they're not having that uh, continuity with their own local providers. Is that kind of what you were meaning when you said that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it, it's multifactorial, right? And it's, or multi-level. So the first vacu- vacuum is that you've created knowledge amongst the population that blindness can be fixed and you fixed it, but then you left. And so now more people realize that there's something that they could have done that could make their lives better, but there's no one there to fix it. So you've created that vacuum in the sense of awareness that there's a problem that can be fixed, but no solution. And, you know, that's one of the first rules of any kind of screening program or test is that you shouldn't screen for something that you can't treat because letting somebody know that they have something that they can't do anything about creates so much worse in terms of psychological damage and uh, trust in systems. Then the part, the vacuum is also that you've kind of 
broken the local system in a way. And that if, if there's no one there that can do any of this, then that's one thing. But most of the time there's people, there are systems in place. There's people that have been to school. There's people that are trained to do this. And just because again of history and the way that the world has been run in the past, when you bring in external, you know, image of the white savior doctor to a population, they're going to think that that's better. And it doesn't always mean that, unfortunately, as well, but they will know they will wait until the doctors come back rather than going to their local system. And again, you have to think of things in the bigger picture. So it's not just the local system in terms of the local doctor, it's the local pharmacies, the you know, drug procurement and the people there that get their livelihood off of prescribing medicines. It's the glasses manufacturers, people there that have their livelihoods. You know, you're by kind of removing that system, you're breaking that whole, that whole tower or that other whole system. Um, and so I think that's, you know, one of the other parts of the vacuum that gets left if you're not, if you're operating in, not operating like surgically, but operating in terms of behaving <laughs> separate from the system. I appreciate the clarification because I, I know for me recently, it was some, one of the points you mentioned about even just the trust with the local healthcare system being disrupted sometimes by these short-term efforts. And when you're not working with people on the ground that are, you know, seeing these patients day to day was really impactful for me. And I just hadn't thought of it through that lens. And so I think it's great that, you know, hopefully some people will learn about that today and can think about global outreach that they engage in a little differently. Yeah. I think, again, it's, it's looking at it, everything from that systems lens and realizing that it's not just cataract surgery, it's everything around it. You know, it's, it's the nursing staff that needs to be employed. It's the glasses, optical shops that need to, the pharmacies, the, the clinics, you know, just, there's so many more layers that you just don't think about the other, or that I guess that we should think about rather than don't. Mm -hmm. The other big issue with this independent working is that, you know, there's complications in surgery and you need to have a, a plan in place and a system in place to deal with those complications when you leave. And even if they're not surgical complications, you know, it's post-operative inflammation and infections and things like that, that might not occur until well after you're gone. And so you have to have someone there that's going to be able to follow up those things. And I think, especially with American surgeons that go abroad, you know, you're used to having, you're a high volume surgeon in the U.S., you have very low complication rates, but then you're working in a different system in a different setting with unfamiliar equipment and really, really advanced cataracts. And so you're going to have complications. So even if you think you're this great surgeon, that's, you don't need to worry about that. Everybody needs to worry about that. And so that's the other big piece that I think is missing with some of the shorter term missions that you just being plugged in the system is better because there's somebody there to help manage the complications and that they can reach out to you and call you later when they have a complication that maybe they haven't seen because they didn't do that surgery and you can help manage it and walk them through it. Yeah. I think those are all really good points. Um, really important to think through and think down the line a little bit about what may happen. This kind of goes along with that, but could you talk about some of your most influential global ophthalmology experiences and what might've surprised you? and how those experiences have changed your day-to-day -day practice. 
One of the things that strikes me again and again is just the power of glasses. I think it's something that, especially in the U.S. and in ophthalmology, we don't like to do. We just find it really tedious, you know, one, two, which one's better? And people kind of, you know, complaining with their 2020 glasses, you know, it just becomes kind of difficult. And honestly, it, it's a little bit of a dying uh, skill is refraction within residents because you have technicians that do it now, or it's just something that gets parsed out to someone else or to optometry. And it's a really important skill to have, but also it's so helpful. And just, you know, some of the, the times that I've seen the most joy on people's faces isn't even after cataract surgery. It's after just giving them a pair of glasses. I mean, I had a woman in Eswatini who brought me a chicken the next day after giving her a pair of glasses because she couldn't pay, even though it wasn't, you know, it was a free service, but she just wanted to give something. Wow. And I wasn't really sure what to do with a chicken, but, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I let the rest the of the staff have that one. Um, but, you know, like that, that kind of simple joy, I think those are the things that really are, are what continue to make an impact on me. And especially that I try to remind myself and bring back into my practice in the U.S. is that while it might seem annoying and time-consuming, it's something that really does make a big difference for somebody. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point and something to remember. And I think, you know, for a lot of medical students interested in ophthalmology, perhaps one of the reasons that they're excited to go into the field and always good to bring it back and see the impact that you can really make with something as important as sight. So, um, and then along, you know, kind of those same lines, when people think about global health, they often think about flying to a faraway place to provide care, but global health, you know, can also be domestic health. And so, um, I know you've had some experiences with domestic underserved populations. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I did a a master's in public health in London at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So they have a program there that's a master's in public health for eye care. So you're specifically learning public health concepts and how they apply to vision and eye care. And from LSHTM and the International Center for Eye Health and the WHO and the International Agency for the Prevention of Blindness came the original kind of public health initiative, if you will, for vision of vision 2020 in learning about tiered care or community-based care and how to create systems of care in that collaboration between different organizations. And I was amazed working in different countries, how everybody has a vision 2020 plan. Like every country has a plan and they know their burden of disease and what they need to do to get to there, to the certain metrics that that the WHO has and have ideas. They might not have the capital or the manpower or the knowledge fully to implement everything, but they have, they know the system and they have ideas on what would work and they have plans in place. And when I came back, and started practicing in the US, it was something I was like, why don't we do these things here? Why are we looking at all these ways to create systems of care and prevent blindness and provide for the poor in other countries, but we're not doing it 
in our own. And so that really became a huge passion for me. And it's, I wouldn't say became because it's always been, like I said, I've always worked in free clinics. I've always like since middle school, even when I was just an interpreter, like I've always recognized that need, but I think bringing in the more population-based, my international experiences and clinical knowledge now, we're able to see that we can be better. You know, we can take some of the lessons over the last several decades of doing community-based care in other countries and apply them to our own population. You know, the social determinants of health are not, or the barriers to access and eye care are not limited to poor foreigners. You know, it's not just in other countries, it's in our own. And learning about them is the first step. So you know and understand what those barriers are, not just what you think they are, and then looking at ways to address those barriers to improve access to care and the quality of care. Um, so I think it's very, very important to be looking at our own population. I think there's a lot that can be learned from what we've been doing internationally. And I think it is personally, I think it's imperative that we do so because if we can't care for our own population, how can we go into another community and tell them how to care for their population? And so I think it's important that we're doing it on both sides and that global health is all encompassing. That's an incredible point. And I do feel like it's something that's overlooked when we're talking about domestic health and it's work that I'm super passionate about. So I'm curious, have you been able to incorporate any of the ideas that you got from Vision 2020 in your work in the States or something similar to it? Yeah. So I've kind of copied the model <laughs> in a sense. So um, we've created Georgia Vision 2020, which is the same concept. It's a collaboration of all the different eye care nonprofits or all those that are kind of trying to do community-based care in the state. And we meet monthly to one, you know, it was just honestly, in the beginning, it was just trying to get everybody to talk to each other because historically organizations have viewed each other as competitors for grants or for contracts or, you know, personnel. And so it was, my method was to create, to do some research, to assess the needs. What are the needs of our state and where are they? So we did a lot of projections work, looking at what vision impairment and the burden of various diseases are going to be in the state up till 2050. And then mapped that out based on our population across the counties so that we knew where we should be focusing our work in Georgia. And when you just present that raw data to all the organizations, you know, they can see that there is plenty of work for everybody. There's no need for competition and we can be stronger by working together. And so through Georgia Vision 2020, we've been able to apply for collaborative grants. And when you go to a foundation or a funder and you say, look, all three organizations are working together to, to provide this, that looks a lot stronger than one individual organization trying to get a grant. So that's one, I mean, so collaborative work is one way we've, we've kind of copied that model. And then just kind of looking at it more grassroots in ways to partner. So, you know, we work within charity clinics across the state that don't necessarily have eye services, but we offer some screenings and then partnership with our other partners that can provide the care. We are creating ne networks of care across the state so that 
providers and individuals can learn where services are. So that's the other big barrier for patients and providers is knowledge. You know, there's a lot of resources and a lot of things out there, but it's hard to know about them. So we're working on just creating the knowledge and be able to connect people to what is available and not waste someone's time, you know, not since have someone that go to their regional hospital that doesn't have any eye services, and then they're going to get transferred to another hospital. And it's just costing more healthcare dollars to then have two different hospital bills and, you know, those types of things. So we're kind of applying the same principles of systems-based healthcare and community eye care that we've learned from with Vision 2020 and international work in universal eye health and applying it to the population here in Georgia. That's amazing. I'm just trying to imagine mobilizing these big organizations in one room in the beginning. And <laughs> I feel like they're, <laughs> this process just sounds like so much work, but also so valuable. And it's really inspiring to hear that you could take a really great idea from internationally and bring it here and actually make it happen and bear fruits. I mean, I want to though stress that it's, it it's, you have to have patience. Yeah. This has not been, and I have to remind myself that all the time. Like I have an idea and I'm like, let's do this. Let's go. Me too. <laughs> and it, you know, things take time. I mean, it started again, just having people having, you know, drinks together and then doing one vision screening together and, you know, that sort of thing. And it takes continued work. You know, there's new leadership that comes in and out. There's new personnel. And so you have to really just kind of keep your, your eye on the end game, you know, at the, at the end versus getting bogged down in some of the little frustrations. So you don't expect just to bring everyone together and everyone's going to play nicely immediately. Yeah. It's going to take some time and some patience. Definitely not overnight affair for sure. (laughs) But kind of on that note and talking about your master's in public health and your training, we also saw that you did a global ophthalmology fellowship and we were kind of wondering how that experience has also helped you become a more successful global ophthalmologist or how that experience was for you just generally and what it added to your education. Yeah, I loved it. I, there wasn't really a fellowship. There was only one global fellowship when I was going through residency. And because of my social situation, meaning my husband, we had already done two years apart and we just didn't need a third. And so doing that fellowship wasn't going to work for me personally. So I worked with my mentors at D. McGee to create our own fellowship. And I spoke to others that were doing global health work at the time and just said, what are the things, like, if you were starting over, what are the things you think you should have known from the beginning or wish you would have known and that sort of thing. And so I kind of put something together as a proposal and had an idea of what skills I wanted to gain through that experience. But mostly, honestly, it's, it's not like I would say global ophthalmology is different in that it's not, it's not as hard metrics as others. So it's not like retina residency where you are going to learn vitrectomies and membrane peels and all these very kind of concrete skills. I would say global ophthalmology fellowships are a little bit more of the soft skills. It's learning about the cultural differences in medicine. It's learning how to relate and respect different cultures and their approach to medicine. And it's learning how to work with others and within systems. 
So, you know, a ministry of health has a very different agenda than an eye clinic. You know, a hospital system has a different agenda than the eye clinic. The public health and community health workers have a different agenda. So it's learning who all these different entities and players are, learning the role they can play in learning how to kind of connect those dots a bit more. And so when doing that, like with Dean McGee, we had relationships in certain countries. And so I set it up uh, again for the med students out there that, you know, it's very common to have long distance relationships in medicine and they're not ideal, but we all live through it. My husband and I discovered that two months was our breaking point of like, if we hadn't seen each other in two months, then just kind of communication broke down. We no longer felt connected. You were having those. Yep. Everything's fine. That's in leaving conversations there. So we, I arranged my fellowship to where I was alternating two months. So I'd go away for two months and come home for two months and then go away for two months and come home. And I spent two months in rural China, two months in Eswatini and two months in Peru. And so very different cultures, very different models of healthcare and different ways of practicing medicine. And it was purely those soft skills of experience. You know, yes, I did surgeries and yes, I saw patients, but I'd say the biggest takeaway from the global ophthalmology fellowships are those experiences more than the hard skills of surgical numbers or cases. That makes sense. I can actually relate slightly to that because I got my master's in public health during my medical education. And a lot of people always ask, well, how are you going to use it every day? And it's hard to describe sometimes the things that I took away from my public health education that were the most impactful for me were those experiences working in underserved populations or learning about different healthcare systems. So exactly. I think you learn I think you learn how to see beyond what's in front of you. So you're seeing that patient and obviously solving those problems, but you're, you have more of ability to look beyond Mm -hmm. that patient and realize that they had to probably take off work and that had to find someone to take care of their kid. And they used all their extra money on the bus to get here and they don't have the $5 for the medication. You know, it's, it's learning to think beyond the short-term interaction and recognize how that important that short-term interaction is, but how it plays a bigger part in the larger piece of the puzzle. Awesome. We are moving on to a portion about advice for listeners and advice for medical students and things like that. So we're wondering if what advice you have for medical students who are looking to get involved in global ophthalmology work. I think the most important, and I mean, I said in the beginning, it's just seeking opportunity you know, any experience is a good experience, I think, and not to get too bogged down in what that experience is. You know, I mean, working as an interpreter in a clinic is a really great experience. Working in a local clinic is a really great experience that you will learn a lot from, that just because you're not being flown to some other country to do some high-level research, that that's not important. I mean, you're going to get more opportunity and experience by doing those little things than you are by the big thing. And so I think looking for all of those opportunities, wherever they might be, even if it's outside of your school or outside of your university. So meaning outside of the school of medicine, like we do a lot with our school of nursing, they do a lot of community work. 
partner with them if they don't have something going on. Say like, I'm interested in eye services. Could I come and help do vision screenings or provide reading glasses? Even little things like that that are still within your scope and ability. And just keeping your eye on what's going to keep you fulfilled for the future. I think it's really hard to not get stuck in the hurdles that we have in medicine, you know, of the USMLEs and then the steps and the board exams and all of the other things that you kind of forget what it was that drew you to medicine in the first place. So having an outlet that reminds you of that. Um, I ran a free clinic when I was a resident and while it was stressful and annoying sometimes to have, I mean, it was only once a month, but if it was already a long day or I was post-call and I didn't want to go do it, I still went. And it was always reinvigorating. It was a reminder of why I went into medicine and went into this field in the first place. So I would say seek opportunities and remember your why and just try to make sure those are aligned. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. It, you know, touching on cross school interaction and and things like that makes me think of we, I'm at the university of Michigan and we have a, um, a lot of different schools and, and I was doing a project where they, the business school was involved and talking to some of those students about eye care and global eye care. Um, it was very eye opening to see like, okay, I've been siloed to learn these things and be, you know, care about these things, but you have been siloed in a different way to think about different things and care about different things. And so, um, it's really eye-opening, even just a couple blocks away to to hear about what people are learning and thinking is important and then to combine those things and um and work together to discuss and help out things that are important. So exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's how these big problems are going to get solved is with collaboration and kind of the cross-pollination, you know, learning from each other. And whether that's, you know, learning within ophthalmology but across borders or learning outside of ophthalmology within your same school. You know, there's so many ways to break out of that mold and get new ideas. And I think that's the only way to really, that we're going to be able to move forward. I love that visual of cross pollination. (laughs) And I agree with, or completely understand the gratitude check of doing this work. And we've had other guests who have emphasize the same point of how when you just get back to why you did this in the first place, sometimes it can be the thing you need to not experience burnout and to remember what invigorates you, like you said. Um, And I kind of wanted to re-bring up something you mentioned earlier about when you did work in Peru and how you kind of sought out that opportunity. Could you just maybe explain a little bit more, you know, how you went about that? Like, did you see the work this person was doing and cold email? Did you have a mentor facilitate? Because I think they're is that scenario a lot of the time for medical students or residents? But again, we don't always feel empowered to, to go get it. So I'd love to hear what how that happened for you. Yeah, um, I don't exactly remember. So Dr. Clifford is the head of our alumni association for our residency program. So he comes, he would come every year during graduation and the alumni association does like a reception and things before the dinner for all the residents and their families. And so I'd met him through that. And I think it was just well known that I wanted to do global health work. And so I'm sure that either someone told him or I told him or 
something. But he said, well, I, I go once a year down to Peru through this organization. You know, you'd be welcome to join. And I think, I'm pretty sure it was just kind of one of those in-passing things. And then I just sent an email and was just, hey, you know, I, I would really like to do that. Can you tell me more about it? I mean, it's not easy. I had to pay my own way, of course. I think that's the other thing to keep in mind as a med student is that funding for this type of work is very difficult to come by. So, you know, at least in the beginning, while you're getting experiences, you're going to be paying your own way, unless you're, you somehow get in on a research grant or something like that. But um, so I just emailed and asked him if I could come along and I took a vacation week, which I remember I had to get approved by the program because we weren't allowed to take vacation in June or July just because it's always a chaotic time. And I made my case and they allowed it. And so every year in June, I would go with Dr. Clifford down for a week and learned how to do small incision cataract surgery, but more importantly, just had the experience of learning what it's like to be in a different medical system. That's awesome. And are there any organizations or resources you found helpful or find helpful for our listeners to, you know, get involved in global ophthalmology or stay in the loop about what's happening in global ophthalmology? Um, I would definitely join the Academy's Go community. The American Academy of Ophthalmology has kind of a, a messaging board, I guess is what it is. I don't know. It's an app and it's just a community for people to post on. So you can just keep an ear out if someone says that they have work that they're doing or something like that. That's a really great way. And just to keep inspired and hear what others are doing. Um, we have the Global Ophthalmology Summit, which is coming up in September here in Atlanta. And so it's another really great way just to meet people, hear what all the different organizations and everyone is doing. Last year, we had um, representatives from the WHO and the IAPB and others there kind of telling us the bigger picture, like how what we're all doing at the individual level is answering these high level world population issues and metrics and how we can ensure that we're working within those. Um, so that's a really exciting new conference. This will be our second one. Otherwise, you know, I think just keeping an ear out and letting people know what your interest is and you'll start to hear more. People will remember that and they'll tell you the next time they hear something. You know, you can always reach out to some of the big NGOs like Orbis and HCP and those. I, I think, you know, it's kind of a hit or miss. Sometimes the smaller NGOs are easier just because it's going to one or two people to answer versus a lot. Um, C International is a great organization as well. They do like that's kind of their primary job is partnering American ophthalmologists with local ophthalmologists to kind of co-learn from each other. And so they at least have a little idea of, you know, areas if there's a specific part of the world you're interested in working in. But yeah, I think it's just talking, just letting people know your interest and the opportunities will come. Thank you so much. That was really helpful because I didn't know about the Go ophthalmology community. Uh, so I'm definitely going to check that out or see international. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and sort of our, our last question about what you think looking towards the future are the most exciting developments you're seeing in global ophthalmology. I think it's the collaboration as like the bigger word and picture of it. And kind of like we've talked about how it's evolved from 
that one-on-one short-term mission to more systems-based, larger picture care, that's evolving more. So now we're seeing more collaboration across specialties within ophthalmology. So, you know, how can the cataract surgeon learn from the retina specialist, learn from the pediatric ophthalmologist? And so there's a lot more coordination of care, which is important for resource utilization, but also just for learning from each other and how one program can learn from another program. You're seeing more crossing of public health and ophthalmology. And I think what also is important is having a crossing of optometry and ophthalmology. That gets very sticky in the U.S., but from a global perspective and from a population perspective, that kind of coordination is needed. And like you kind of mentioned, the the thinking outside the box in working with business schools, working with nursing schools, working with um, technology industry, you know, there's, there's a lot of bridges being built. And so I think that's gonna, those conversations happening are going to lead to really great innovative ideas that we were too siloed before to, to come up with. So that's, I think that growing community and the collaboration across disciplines is what's exciting to watch coming up. Well, thank you so much, Dr. O'Banion, for your time. Do you have any social media or projects you want to plug before we leave? Well, go Emory. So Global Ophthalmology Emory has an Instagram. I think that's basically the only social media I really partake in because I'm old. Um, And then um, the Go Summit. So the Global Ophthalmology Summit has kind of been a brainchild of mine and some, some colleagues. And so you know, we were really thrilled with how the first kind of trial of it went last year in Salt Lake. And this year it will be in Atlanta and then next year it's going to be in Portland. And so it's rotating around through different institutions, different parts of the country, but bringing together all those different entities that I was talking about, the public health world, the advocacy world, the clinical world, you know, and, and bringing everyone together to learn and discuss problems. And in fact, this year we're putting on a hackathon. So, you know, presenting the audience with various problems that then as a group, we can talk and figure out like, how are we going to solve this? And I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. Cause I think breaking down those walls and having the conversations amongst each other that we're going to really be able to, to come up with some really great ideas and ways to improve the lives of, of people. So that's, that would be my one thing to plug global ophthalmology summit. And it's going to be September 8th through 10th in Atlanta. That sounds amazing. Sounds really cool and interesting. I love brainstorming sessions. Well, I hope you will both come. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. This was an amazing talk. And I think our listeners are going to have so many great learning points from this. Great. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun talking with you guys. And to learn more about The Lens, you can follow us on Twitter at at the lens underscore O-P-H. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get easy to read summaries of the latest ophthalmology research in your inbox every week.